I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey, welcome once again to another edition of I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning. Hey, today we are joined live from Edinburgh by the author Sam Riviera. He has a new book out called Dead Souls. If you're in the UK, it's on W&N, which is an imprint of Hachette. Here it's on Catapult, which is a good uh, little indie book label that if you don't know, you should be familiar with. They also publish Soft Skull. Sam, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. It's great to have you on. Uh, Dead Souls is a, um, is, is it fair for me to call it kind of an experimental book? I mean, it is written as a single paragraph, and I, I, I hesitate to say that because I don't want to have listeners immediately turn the radio off. You know, they yeah. hear experimental <laughs> and they're like, oh, I'm going to cash out for 69 it's, minutes. It's readably experimental. It's very yeah. readable experimental. But, but is it fair to just start off by saying that? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think I was trying to be less experimental than my tendency normally is. So uh, the single paragraph seemed a nice way to sort of confine myself as well. Okay. But um, yeah, to me, it seems like as, as good a shot as I had of doing a fairly conventional novel. Because you started out and, and gained notoriety, first of all, as a poet. Yeah, that's right. So, and, and the book, uh, we're going to get into your book for a second. The book is about... Uh, yeah, a weird way, a kind of alternate world of South Bank London, uh, which is a major cultural center in England. Uh, but it's uh, a world where uh, drones uh, circulate and you pay for things with your thumbprint. And uh, there are these massive festivals of culture. And the uh, narrator of, of Sam's book uh, is talking to all these people, particularly about a poet that has been accused of plagiarism not once but twice. Before we get into that, I do want to back up a little bit because I think people who um, are well-read probably know there is another book called Dead Souls, and it's by mm. Nikolai Gogol. And uh, I wanted to start there because I, I, I have to think that you, in some ways, based some of what you were doing on Gogol's book. Now, for people that don't know about Gogol's book, it is a classic of Russian literature. Uh, Gogol himself really intended it to be kind of a modern-day divine comedy. It was a prose poem. But it was a satire. It was about a guy named Pavel Chichikov who meets a group of people, and his goal is to basically buy their land by buying their souls. And in Russia, before the emancipation of the serfs, which came around 1860, um, serfs were actually owned by the lieges of the land. And if you died, your soul still counted. So, for example, if a landowner had six serfs living on his land and two of them died, he still had six. Those dead souls counted. Right. And that's, that's how they referred to all their... Surf, Correct. Souls, right? As yeah. souls. And, and that was actually a counting measure in Russia. It didn't necessarily have the same uh, connotation as when we use it. But Chichikov in the book, and this is a satire by Gogol, he's going around trying to collect these dead souls and then he's going to sell them because he thinks that's going to make him rich. And the book is a long conversation and he meets people during the book uh, and they are archetypes of what Gogol is trying to satirize. And again, I'm, I'm, this is so dimly remembered. I was in yeah. university 30 years ago. But well, I remember I, I, when I read it, I thought it was like Dead Souls, like the metaphysical, yeah. like the Joy Division song. And I read it, I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to start there because, you know, Sam, obviously it's a classic. It, your book is going to be compared to it, though I think it probably has more to do with Thomas Bernard, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But can you talk about the influence mm. of, of Gogol on your work? Because, I mean, obviously that is a classic of Russian literature and a classic of world literature. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it felt like a... a a kind of um, irreverent move to name a book after 
something as totemic as Dead Souls. And yeah, you're what you've. I. It sounds like you've read it a lot more recently than thirty. <laughs> but yeah, that that the the. I think when I read it, I I had the makings of a, of a story in my head, and it was a very slow um, gestation period for writing this novel. And I think when I read Dead Souls, um, and I read it for the first time maybe five years ago or something, something like that, but the basic plot outline struck me as being like uh, having an interesting tension with and sort of that it could be mapped quite interestingly onto a contemporary situation, whereby something would take the place of the dead serfs, the souls that Chichikov purchases so that he can ascend the ranks of landowners, right? Um, So instead it would become... um, poems, poets, social media followers, you know, there seem to be all sorts of um, things in the, like the tokens of success for like the modern writer, which uh, you have to accrue in order to like become um, visible and known. And it just seemed like a nice, a sort of neat allegorical pattern to, to map onto the, the kind of story I had in mind, which was, to, which was always going to be about plagiarist. Um, so I just really liked the the, the logic of um, Dead Souls as a story, um, and this idea really of like a sort of quest novel of like a, a character who goes and meets different people and runs into different situations, and he tries to get things out of these people. It didn't. I envisage it in the beginning as being like a much more directly, closely following the plot of the Russian novel, but in the end, it tended it, it became much looser than that. But the basic plot outline is there. I think it's still legible in in, in my um, in my version. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. And I think before I hand it off to one of my colleagues, I, you know, one of the things that was interesting about your book and, of course, Gogol's book, is it is essentially talking about uh, the monetization of things that really shouldn't necessarily be monetized. And yeah. and that is, I think, one of the things that is a thread throughout your book. You're you're talking in kind of a and maybe, I don't know if you guys agree with me, but I felt it was kind of a barely controlled rage at, uh, <laughs> you know, the idea that um, people's words could be turned into a commodity and social media followers, which are frankly BS. I can't say what I would say on American radio, but, you know, some things that we have given uh, currency to really don't actually matter. And I, that was something that Gogol was talking about. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think that is what you were getting at as well. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm less interested on having a position about it necessarily as other, or more just observing that this is the case, that it might, it might be that there's something insubstantial seeming, there certainly is something insubstantial seeming about having hundreds of thousands of social media followers, but nonetheless, there are material results that can happen if you do, you know that um, for some, if you're, you know, an artist or something, that can make you, a, that can be the difference between being a successful artist or not. So I, I agree that there is um, something insubstantial and certainly suspicious, and I think it's right that we're sceptical about the meaning of this. But at the same time, I'd like to, I also wanted to acknowledge that there is a material um, consequence to these things. In the same way that Chichikov's Dead Souls were people who didn't exist anymore, they were names on a document, right? But nonetheless, in terms of what he could use them for, they had real material um, value. And I suppose I'm interested in that contradiction, that there are things that can seemingly be valueless or insubstantial, ghostly indicators of value, 
but yet in certain contexts they become real and they lead to real changes in fortune or real um ascents in terms of climbing the cultural ladder if you want to call it something like that i wanted to say when i was reading some of the reviews and blurbs and things people compared it to savage detectives a lot and i was like that's really lazy it's just like i thought people were just like oh there's Mm. poetry in it so it must be must be like the savage detectives and i didn't think it was like the savage Detectives. no i didn't know but why didn't nobody mention the original dead souls like when i was reading these and i'm just like i'm like these american reviewers are so lazy yeah and uh, (laughs) to me you know obviously i got the the reference to the original and also like we're outsiders this show we we we're not part of the literary establishment in Chicago, although we're kind of like on the periphery. And obviously we have a lot of, you know, wonderful people on the show. But when I was reading, I was just like, I loved it because just the way that some, like the futility of social media and being popular and the Locket app, which was phenomenal. um, I think there was a certain type of person this would resonate with. I, I think this kind of book was kind of written for guys like us that love literature, but don't Thank like, you. don't like the, all yeah, that goes with it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, you know, and I don't, when I read some of the reviews, I particularly this one review on NPR where the woman did not get the book at all. Yeah, she didn't even try. I don't, she didn't even try. And I'd be surprised if she read it, but I think that might've just hit a little bit too close to home to her because it was very, you know, sometimes we go to these things and it's just like, really? Yeah, like, this is yeah. what we're doing? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask is I think in, in um, the original Dead Souls, Gogol had a prefatory note. He did. And it was supposed to be longer, too. He, he was supposed to actually make it uh, a, a three volume thing. And he, yeah. he died before doing that. And that's an interesting part of it. Because he was doing a, a dangerous thing. He was, yes. And he was satirizing, you know, contemporary Russian corruption. Uh, and, Landowners, and, yeah. You know, Sam is also satirizing contemporary corruption, <laughs> but but maybe not with as much risk unless he believes I know, that That's Mark what Zuckerberg, I was going to ask. Well, it is his world. I mean, you, you know, right. trying to get stuff right. published. So, like, if somebody looks at this and it's like, hey, Sam, is this me? You know, I mean, it could right. be a little bit right. dangerous. Well, that's a, fair, that's a fair point, Sam, is, yeah. you know, have, have you gotten any pushback from from colleagues uh because i again i think this is a very scottish novel in a weird way the the, the scottish sense of humor is very cutting and dry and kind of to the point it it likes taking people down a peg have you gotten any kind of brushback from that well no and i think there's it's an, there's an interesting i mean i think it's the sort of thing that it might come through in the odd review and i have to say i don't mind getting bad reviews because in in a way the the book was um supposed to like get under the skin of the industry a little bit um and at least that's that was part of my motive for writing it was to to say things that sort of people say in private conversations but are allowed into the the public forum of you know we all have to celebrate how great everyone's books are and and whatever um which i think i think that's the thing about this is that a, a, a lot of people or even most people and perhaps there's an age thing here that it becomes more obvious to you the longer you've been in those sort of environments. And I think the reviewer you're mentioning is is possibly in her early twenties, and the, and the the jadedness hasn't quite. I believe she looks very young. I mean, but I, when I was reading, which yeah. is fine. And I th- I remember I was used to be more enthused about these, and and that's part of the whole journey as well because you begin being very excited about literary environments and and you know meeting people who are writing and. You know, I don't want to be condescending either, but like I, um, towards that reviewer, but like um, I also felt, um, 
in some ways that it's a thing that um, there's a kind, some kind, kind of a false consensus that that we all are on board and we all think, oh, what a great industry this is, and you know, we're you know, we're all so lucky to read each other's books. But but the reality is that everyone has this other this flip side of that, which is like the the jealousy and aggravation and anxiety and just um, the the sort of baser emotions that this kind of marketplace way of looking at literature causes. Um, so I felt like I wanted to tap into that. And I think the irony here is that actually that's something that a lot of people who are really immersed in that industry, it resonates with them too. Um, and in a weird way, it's like, maybe that was a kind of gambit that, um, you know, in a funny way, I haven't had as much pushback as I thought was I might have done, right? Um, I'm actually English, not Scottish, but I think the English humour is is similar. It's like it... Yeah. There's a there's a sense of being like um uh or there's a part in the book where they say uh you know no one likes to hear someone getting too much praise in England. Like as soon as someone starts to get too much praise, there has to be a the the opposite impulse takes over and someone has to be chopped down, you know? <laughs> and yeah. that's a definite definitely part of the public appetite is for that to happen. I feel like it's has like its that. own logic to it. Yeah. I feel like it's like that in the States as well, especially when it's not major, you know, major publishers or it's more of the indie stuff. You know, it's like soon somebody gets a little too big for their britches, everybody attacks. Yeah, you them. think you're better than me? Yeah. Although well, that's changing because now we don't want to offend anyone in America. And yeah. that, that's the current the current climate. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Would, I would say, though, in, in England and, and Scotland, because the, the scene is so much smaller and it is, you know, England yeah. is both... It's very unusual. England's one of the few places where they still actually have print newspapers, and a lot of them. Uh, there is this kind of consensus reality, and uh, one of the things that I thought was very effective, and in a moment I want to actually play it for everybody so they can hear it, but uh, newspapers in, in England, particularly when it comes to sports, love elevating things, talking about it with one voice, and then immediately trashing them when something goes bad. <laughs> And as You're we exactly right. Yeah, yes. as we're recording this during the European Championships, when hopefully England will lose to Scotland this week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, nothing, nothing personal, Sam. I'm, I'm not going public with my opinion. Well, there you go. Uh, but no, that that is something that that is Sam is very correct about. And and with that, I actually want to play a, a little piece from Sam's book, Dead Souls. Uh, this week, as always, we want to thank our reader, uh, Shanna Van Volt. Music is by Micaiah McRaven, and I think I'm going to play a little segment um, about a Ukrainian poet uh, who the narrator in the book uh, is forced to quote from and, and read from when she is detained at Heathrow. So let's take a listen to this, and when we come back, we're going to talk more with Sam Riviere about his book, Dead Souls. It's out now from Catapult. You're listening to I-94. I had been invited to the 26th Festival of Culture to fulfill a number of duties, and the most pressing now lay ahead of me, the recital of some poems in translation by the Ukrainian poet, essayist, and broadcaster, Zuriya Zadan, before an audience of several hundred at the King George Hall. Zuriya Zadan had been booked to recite her poems in the original Ukrainian, and her animated performance style was to provide the conclusion to the evening, which featured a number of other controversial or politically sensitive writers, paired with authors and editors who had either translated their works or published them in English, which is what I had done, selecting five of Zuriya Zadan's poems for appearance in the spring issue of Casement. The event had been thrown into disarray by news I had received earlier in the afternoon from the organizers via email that Zaria Zadan would be unable to attend as she had been detained by authorities at Heathrow early that morning for reasons that couldn't be specified, word of which had only just reached them. 
so I would be reciting the poems of the outspoken Ukrainian poet alone on stage at King George Hall, where I would be expected in some way to embody the work's political efficacy in front of an audience of close to a thousand spectators who were eager to soak up statements of political dissent, particularly when targeted at a regime that is portrayed across our media as violently repressive and dangerously corrupt, in this case that of the Russian government. What purpose did it serve, I wondered as I passed a food stand selling savory Brazilian pastries to read out these works, undoubtedly deeply felt, terrifying and hilarious works of poetry, first in translation, so lacking the reference points and natural medium of their own language, and second for the applause of a comfortable audience on a clement early autumn weeknight in the center of London. A trip out to a thoroughly respectable cultural event and a glass of wine afterwards wasn't this kind of thing simply assisting our own complacency and impotence, I thought as I shouldered through a group of teenagers carrying skateboards on the South Bank, dramatizing in the guise of a worthy literary event a power struggle from the seemingly distant arena of post-Soviet politics and basically celebrating our distance from it, thereby completely ignoring our own situation. Might the spectacle just as well be completely made up, set on Mars, for example, featuring a race of reptilian humanoids for all the impact it would have? Hadn't the poetry of Zabria Zadan been converted in these palatial buildings with their lighting rigs and sound systems and multi-level restaurant and bar facilities seamlessly into inoffensive or even officially mandated entertainment? I didn't know and I didn't really care. I recognized these thoughts as displaced anxiety about the performance. But it was true that I had considered them earlier in the day, too, running over several possible critiques that could be mounted of the event, a habit I'd formed years ago, like many in the literary sector, of having to imaginatively justify my activities to a zealous and politically astute cabinet of observers. And that was a reading from Dead Souls, new book out from Sam Riviere from Catapult Books. And we're talking to Sam right now. And just before the break, I mentioned that we were going to listen to a little segment about a Ukrainian poet. And of course, the book is about poetry. Uh, one of the things that struck me about um, the particular passage that I happen to quote, um, and for people that don't know, Sam uh, Sam can't actually hear that reading because we do this in post-production, but uh, he wrote the book, so I'm assuming he knows what I'm talking about. Um, you know, you make a very interesting point that the performative aspect of reading something out loud has different meanings depending on who does it. And in the book, uh, he is reading this at a festival, and he talks about how everyone's just out for a nice night. They're having a glass of wine. They're having, you know, maybe a lobster roll or whatever, uh, where the poet is actually uh, in jail at Heathrow. We don't, we don't really know why she's been detained and not allowed to enter the country. And her poetry, not only has it uh, been shifted from her home language, which is Ukrainian, into English, uh, but, you know, maybe because someone else is now reading it and doesn't have... Uh, her point of view, maybe the meaning of that poem has been shifted, and maybe the setting in which this poem is now being read has been shifted, which goes back to what we talked about at the start of the show about kind of the commodification of this stuff. And Sam, you well, know, as a it's as, a good example because the the the, the context changes too because correct, yeah. there's a scandal and there's this dramatic thing happening where a, 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 a foreigner has been unjustly mm -hmm. held at their airport, and so that adds value to the poem somehow for these the audience members. Right. So, and Sam, I just wondered if you could discuss that a little bit, because I think in, in a way that's an early sense in your book of, of kind of what you're getting about the slipperiness of meaning and language when it becomes commodified in different situations. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for picking up on that. That's, uh, that's definitely kind of what powers the book um, for large sections of it. I think I became kind of 
almost in a slightly um, negative way, fixated on questions about, um, before I wrote the novel, about what, what the um, biographical surrounds of a poet or a writer adds or detracts from their work. And I found that I just kept going round and round with these ideas, that, that there was never a satisfying way to like resolve them, that um, by some token, it always seems like the biographical context of a work is unnecessary. It's a sort of new criticism, criticism idea, I suppose, that it's this kind of mooring of the work into this historical moment that, can, that in some senses confines the work and makes it only mean a certain amount of things. And I've definitely been in situations where um, works which it seemed to me were like richer and more dynamic, maybe. And um, in, in also in a really literal way, not aware of their historical context in the way that we are, right? I mean, the example that people always use is like Sylvia Plath, that, you know, people, people write about Sylvia Plath as if, as if she always knew she was going to kill herself. But I don't think that's a healthy way of looking at the poems, that, like, you have to think that this, these were written by someone who, who didn't know that yet, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so like uh, there was, so there was that suspicion that um, that there was something uh, confining and sometimes reductive about these this kind of information being bolted onto the work, and yet at the same time, having to acknowledge that sometimes context is indispensable when we look at a, a work of fictional poetry that you really can't do without it. Sometimes, sometimes the the work demands that you educate yourself about the context of that work. Right? I mean, reading Russian literature, right? You you're going to definitely get more out of that book if you have some working knowledge of like the systems of serfdom and so on that they had. Um, so I think it was really a way of rolling these ideas around. And I, I really found through thinking them through that once I'd come to some kind of conclusion, immediately the opposite kind of argument would assert itself and become more appealing. And that's when I sort of thought that rather than trying to write about this in an academic or non-fictional way, I mean, I'm not an academic, but to write about an essay about it or something, it, it would seem to suit this form of a novel much better in which you can like dramatize these arguments by having different characters and situations kind of demonstrate them and then see what happens. Um, and that seemed like a more like in a situation where it's sort of always shifting, the ground seems to always be shifting on these arguments under them that to dramatize it in that way seemed to me a much much more like a living document like a way of actually thinking through them and really get helping a reader or asking a reader to think through them alongside me or alongside the story and i don't have any hard and fast conclusions to draw about them but i think it is an important question and that in different contexts i suspect a different conclusion would be reached but yeah, thank you for um, bringing that out because that's a really uh, important part of the book for me. There are, um, there's a bit, a few pages where uh, I forget which character is being discussed, um, but they're talking about poetry anthologies. Oh my God, I had that marked. I was going to bring that one up too. <laughs> and uh, kind of, page 209. <laughs> yeah, kind of the futility of poetry anthologies. And it, it, it's... It's oh, talked yeah. about through this anecdote of a sec, uh, a, a bookshop owner, a secondhand bookshop yeah. owner who the old poet. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, no, or I don't. McCall I don't know if it's McCall's. the old poet. I don't think that the name is ever mentioned. It's just it's it's an anecdote about a bookshop owner who's always being brought these these poetry anthologies that no one yeah, ever. It's sort of hypothetical, up. like bookshop owner. Yeah. Yeah, and he ends up burning them. 
Yeah, because they uh, sit and stack up with all yeah, the other and poetry it, anthologies and it, and it, that no one ever purchases. Yeah, it's sort of this lambasting of, of, of modern poetry culture, that the only people who read poems are the poets themselves, and it's a bunch of people kind of half-heartedly praising each other in the hopes that they'll be praised back for their own poems, but no, no one outside this little circle is actually reading the poems. Well, one, I, I, I did not get a bitter tone from your novel. You know, that, that NPR review made it sound like, you know, it was some kind of uh, bitter revenge novel on the publishing industry. I, I didn't feel that way. And, and you're a poet, you know, you, you published three... Um, yeah, chapbooks or or books of poems, and you run a a, a, a press called If a Leaf Falls, and I tried to uh, um, yes. go on there and see what it was about, but I, I had a little trouble with it. Can you talk about um, your experience as a poet and running a yeah. micro press? What a micro press is? Yeah, of course. Um, uh, yeah, I I mean, a part of the reason I think about this stuff so much, I suppose, is because I do actually care about poetry, and it, and it is a big part of my life. Um, and has been for quite a long time. So it's not that I am, I'm just seeking to like demolish the, it's that I think there are really important things about poetry or things that I love about it. Um, and that uh, seem to get distorted or left by the wayside in certain situations, in certain contexts where poetry seems to become more fixed, like the world around, it's never the poetry itself. It's like the world around it becomes fixated on a claim or, whatever prizes or um, uh, this kind of sense sometimes that can emerge that poetry is this sort of um, impoverished, depleted marketplace where the only purveyors of poetry are the people who also are the only people who buy poetry, right? That it's the same people wearing different hats and that it's kind of just this, um, this trade-off situation where people are just exchanging their work. There's, but there's a there's a side of that that I that I like, which is like it, it's kind of this economy with no capital, you know. And I kind of, part of me thinks there's, there's there's something at least incipiently idealistic about that, that it's like this art form that's always on the on the brink of escaping from like the the the, the limits of being in capitalism. That you know that you in order to to be an artist in a in capitalism you have to constantly sell yourself and you have to accept that you're going to be reduced to a commodity and that your work is only going to be interesting for as long as there's a reason for those structures to be interested in it right but because there's no material rewards in poetry to speak of that it's like the poorest art form you know in material i mean it's not time poor that's an interesting distinction maybe you need leisure time um but the um that it's always seems to me that it's had this like potential to not be entrapped by those demands, right? But yet my experience of the poetry world was always that it seemed the most avidly concerned with those indicators of esteem <laughs> and those like publishing concerns and the sort of um, uh, accolades that make someone's ego get big. So that in a weird way, it was like, why is, in this, why is it in this art form where there's really no material reason to be a poet? If you want to get rich, it's not a good option why is it that people seem more hell-bent on esteem and, and these like shallow indicators of success than in any other art form i could think of so it just seemed like an interesting paradox to think through um hmm. yeah i started a small press uh, about five years ago partly because i felt like um there was a good enough reason to do it i had a discount at the uni printers where i worked <laughs> um and it was just a sort of practical thing 
and also this way I started to want to think about poetry publishing as like in a sort of anti-competitive way that if um, you're only really in competition with other poets and other publishers if you think you're doing the same thing as them and they're like stealing your spot or something so I was like okay what if I just so I originally just thought well, I'm only going to do a poetry press that publishes 20 or 30 copies of everything there's only going to it's only going to publish like found poetry it's not it's not going to publish anything else so I was like, no one else is doing that. There's, I have no competition, you know. And that, that seemed like an interesting way to think of a publishing project as more like an art, a collaborative art project with the poets I worked with. And then it grew from there. And I now do, I still do very small runs, say 100 copies-ish. And uh, I no longer just do found work, but there tends to be some process element or something like that. Um, you know, sometimes it's work that makes use of the internet somehow. Sometimes it's work that, that is, is somehow not not sort of um, produced through personal writing. There'll be some other method at play. Um, so that, that seemed like a way of asserting a different sort of value that seemed like the most commercial value in poetry was like the, the, the personal revelation story. Like something happened to me and it changed my life and that's the subject of the poem. And that seemed in a paradoxical way to have become the most generic kind of poem. So I was like, what if I just publish stuff that there's no personal revelation in, right? Yeah. Wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be an interesting way of trying to destabilise this consensus about value in poetry in a quiet and kind of funny way? Yeah, um, yeah that, that does tie into the themes of the novel, I think. And uh, yeah, um, hmm. that was my thinking. Okay. Well, we're speaking with Sam Revere. He's the author of Dead Souls. It's out now on Catapult. We do need to take a break for station identification and to thank the folks that make Lumpen Radio possible. You are listening to I-94. After the break, we'll be back with more from Lumpen Radio. And now back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. By this point, Christian Booch's memory was in ruins, Amelia Albers said. During his first week in the so-called sanatorium, he could recall very little of the last few years of his life. Or it was more the case that he did recall this period of time, but the content of his experience was different to the general outline that his careers were able to construct. When he slowly came back to himself in that sanatorium, so-called, he had no memory of having lived with Amelia Albers on the abandoned floor of the office building with six or seven other techno-activists, and the idea seemed completely outlandish to him. In fact, he had no memory of Amelia Albers at all, other than the girl he had gone to school with, whom he had daydreamed about. He later confessed to Amelia Albers, but not as someone he had met and got together with later in life. And he was convinced that the Amelia Albers he remembered had died several years previously in some kind of electrical fire. That someone called Amelia Albers was calling him repeatedly and trying to arrange a visit, as his carers informed him, was not something he could easily accept. Even now, Christian Butch remembered having these memories, Amelia Albers said, memories that he had been told were completely imaginary, that he had to assume were completely imaginary. It had given him the strange feeling of being between lives, or even of being in the wrong life, that he had never completely lost, although his so-called real memories had eventually returned in full. Exactly how Christian Butch had ended up in surrounds this unusual mental health institution, or sanatorium as it was referred to by its staff, a large country house set in acres of woodland, more like a health spa or exclusive rehab center than state facility it claimed to be, was a mystery he and Amelia Albers had never got to the bottom of. They had only questioned it some time later, when their inquiries were met with polite yet firm obfuscations, the equivalent of knowing smiles, it now seemed to Amelia Albers. 
Christian Booch's time in the sanatorium, which Amelia Albers had been discouraged from visiting, being kept unaware during his sequestering of its exact location, was defined by two presences, two pools by which he oriented himself, that of his doctor, Dr. Foley, and that of the man he shared his room with, who was also named Christian, Christian Bush told Solomon Wise when he resumed the story later that evening back at the house. This other Christian had been an inventor of some renown before a career-ending psychotic episode, and there were questions over the criminality of his past that Christian Booch, more lucid by the day, was never able to resolve, despite several conversations, or rather the one long fragmented conversation that they had conducted over the entirety of his stay in the so-called sanatorium, during which time he was in more or less constant contact with the other Christian, confined to the plainly furnished room they shared, much like a room in an inexpensive hotel, with twin beds and a view of the garden, and beyond that the woods. For the first few days during which Christian Booth recovered his sense of time and place, the other Christian didn't speak at all. Hi, everybody. This is I-94. My name, as always, is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jamie. We just heard an excerpt from Sam Revere's book, Dead Souls. It's out now in Catapult, and we're talking to Sam. He's joining us live from Edinburgh. Had an interesting conversation before the break with Sam about a lot of things about his book. One of the things we haven't talked about yet, and I do want to get into before we let you go, Sam, this book has been compared to the work of Thomas Bernard, who, if people are not familiar with him, was an Austrian writer and a rather infamous Austrian writer in the sense that he hated Austria and has <laughs> not allowed his work to be uh, published or performed in Austria. I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, so after his death, he, uh, his foundation uh, has tried to prevent that. He is considered Austria's greatest writer, and, and he was, uh, in many ways, a conversationalist. Uh, he, it, it, I don't know if it's fair to say that he believed death was the end-all and be-all of human existence, but he certainly fixated on death quite a lot. And many of his books take the form of these kind of long monologues, generally uh, between a passive listener and a narrator, uh, and generally in very extended paragraphs. And it is a very lazy thing to say that you know, any book with extended paragraphs, whether it's Duck's Newberry Port or whether it's Sam's novel, uh, relates to Thomas Bernard. But we have to give him credit, and we do have to talk about him, because in a lot of ways, I think what Bernard was doing, and I'm not the biggest Bernard fan or, or acolyte, I must say, but, you know, I did recognize a little bit of the way that he probed with language in his conversations to try to tease apart meaning from ideas that at first seemed simpatico, but he was very good at making them reveal that they were actually in opposition. And I yes. think that's that's something that you do very uh, well in the book. And, yeah. you know, one of the things that is interesting to me, because we talked before the break about commodity capitalism and commodity and poetry, you know, the thing that has always been interesting to me about poetry is that it's uh, it's been dead now for you know 300 years. It <laughs> continues to die, uh, and and the only accolades it's is like you, punk rock. It's like punk rock. Punk rock's been dead since '76, yeah. <laughs> and and you know, but but people still do it. You know, the the material rewards, as you mentioned before the break, are, are minuscule, but the only markers it seems of what makes poetry meaningful are large foundation prizes. Like you win the Pulitzer, you win the Nobel, you win this little award that gets you a stipend. And the kind of clambering to get to these things uh, in poetry changes how people look at poetry and it changes how people experience it. Well, so look I, at the Poetry Foundation here. They got all that <clears> money <throat> and it became like this whole new thing. You know, it was, uh, yes. it was a very small 
tiny thing and now they have this amazing building and they do all these uh, events there yeah. and everything and it's it's become much more in the public eye than it yes. was historically. Yeah, and I mean, and, and you can argue that's good or bad too. But I mean, getting back to you know Sam's book and and the connection of Bernard, I think you really play with a lot of things like that in your novel. Yeah, poetry business, right? Um, you guys are in Chicago. We yes, are in sir. Chicago, so we're. Thought, I've never been to the Poetry Foundation building, but it's all money from big pharmaceuticals, right? It was a big, it was uh, a big it, donation. It, it from was a, one. It was one donor. It was one donor. She uh, died. She was the heir to the Eli Lilly. Yes, I think. you're you're yeah, correct though. It fortune. was Eli Lilly Squibb. So she had heiress. She That's had it. gotten a lot of money from I think morphine, and uh, now it's gone to poetry. Yeah, it is an interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting sort of Venn diagram, isn't it? Yeah. In some ways, there's always been money and poet you know there's the 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 myth about it is that poets are live in a garret and you know survive you know they they season their soup with their own tears um, <laughs> you, you seem know, to have uh, quite a nice place sam i can i can assure our listeners that you do not live in a garret and uh you seem to be tear free <laughs> historically there's always been money you know always been money somewhere in poetry right because you need the time to write it so it was always the aristocracy that yeah. were poets so i think there's just a, there's an interesting dissonance there right and with the, the thomas bernhard question yeah i mean i i love his writing um, I like that in Austria, his nickname, I don't know what it is in German, but he was called the Nest Dirtier, which I always really like because it's like he soiled his own house. Yeah. And, he ate it. and I really like that logic. It's like biting the hand that feeds sort of logic. And um, We'll call him Poopy Pants. Uh, so I did, there was something about his work that was like the willingness to go there, like the willingness to, to, to risk alienating large swathes of his readership, but in order to say something that he thought was worth saying. But yeah, I really loved what you said about that, like teasing apart these thoughts until it's like it becomes clear they're they're in opposition to each other. They're in a, they're a dialectic. You know, they're not like uh, everything isn't fine. Everything isn't in harmony. You know, yeah. there are there are poets who like um, you know in my version who like present themselves as a you know very authentic, very like people with a lot of integrity. But behind it, there's um, this uh, perhaps a business who are who have put them together as like a brand, you know. So I think it's like this, uh, or the idea of the music of the industry plant, you know. That in some ways we're not that far away from that in literature. Sometimes I think that it's uh, a career development plan. Sometimes. Yeah, and of course uh, Bernard so I, was commenting about you know just to, just for readers not to interrupt Sam, but <clears throat> yeah, no, one no. one of the big things about Bernard was he was commenting on fascism. Now, you know, yeah. that, that is something that we, we need to talk about because Bernard, one of the reasons he is, he is so despised in some parts of Austria is he called out Austria explicitly for its Nazi ties. And he, in his novels, showed how the embrace of Nazism as what was seen as a strong, reassuring hand of the father on the country of Austria was actually a poison chalice. Did he write was 30s to 60s around there? Uh, he well, he he was he born. Died in the eighties. Yeah, he died in the eighties. So yes, yes, he did. You know, his uh, prime, though. Yeah. Jelinek writes about that. Too. Yeah, yeah. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the writing and just an unrelated tip is horror movies out of Austria. It's crazy. Well, yeah, yeah. But I mean, unlike somebody like Gunter Grass, you know, whose whose Tin uh, Drum is you know obviously feted as a great anti-Nazi novel, but was actually a collaborationist. Sure, for part yeah. of his life, you know, Bernhard was not, and he, and he was very much out there at a time when, in Vienna, uh, that could get you killed. Uh, oh, wow. So you know, I think that you know sometimes when we talk about um, the stakes, 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. The, the, no, totally. I, and I, I think that, you know, when, what Sam is talking about in his book, and I, I, I want to make this very clear, some of the things that we think are low stakes and ha-ha, like, oh, you know, it's it's fine that, you know, some of this stuff is read in front of the prawn brigade and some of this. But getting back to the example of the Ukrainian poet, well, what happens when the meaning of her dissent against life under Soviet Russia and Russian aggression is totally removed? You know, yeah, what has happened yeah. to the stakes yeah. in that? And so, you know, I want to make sure that people are, are clear on that, because, Sam, I think that is what you were getting at. And that's what you were taking yeah, for no, the you, You're exactly right. That, um, uh, I think it's I remember reading an interview with a Romanian poet who's who was young enough to remember communism, uh, old enough to remember communism, rather. He actually became a monk uh, in the end when he was in his 30s or something. There's an interview from the early 2000s with him, Adrian Ermanov. And he, he spent some time in the UK and he said, I find the UK more dangerous than to be in Romania because um, you don't know where the tiger is. And he says, I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. You don't know where the threat is because everything seems it's fine. And I think that's a big, um, a big problem for any sort of um, political dissent is exactly where in our day and age mm -hmm. is exactly where to tar where to target your um antagonism and aggression i mean there are obvious places to do that but they are so they are sometimes so obvious as to seem like decoys right or there, there is sometimes this sense that um for art where are the stakes right that if you exactly this thing if you take away the the historical oppression of um of, of the artist and in fact the artist becomes sponsored or you know a sort of uh, a capitalist in anything other than name you know in the way they conduct themselves then what are they? What is their job really within that culture? I mean, particularly when you you think about. I mean, this is a bit more. I don't think it's any less insidious in the UK, but it's perhaps more well known in the states that you know the CIA quite actively put money into the arts. You know, and we saw it as part of the Cold War. Yeah, it's what started the Paris Review. Yeah, totally. So, like, this is something. There's historical ties with this stuff, right? That are that are that are interesting, and I think there's an uneasiness about. Um, I remember I once did a, a poetry reading at Goldsmiths in London and uh, there was a, there was some very left-wing people in the audience who found my poetry flippant. And they said, someone asked a question at the end and they said, doesn't it make you uncomfortable that people died um, over these aesthetic questions and you were making light of that? And it was a, it was a moment of, um, of, uh, uh, of something shifting for me, which was that, yes, that, that they were... Where is that risk for the artist now? Because it isn't something that many people in the West really experience. And I think it's something that perhaps even as an artist, other than, okay, you can say something problematic, maybe, but it's hardly the same as being, um, as being Lorca and being, you know, shot in and put in an unmarked grave or whatever. Um, so I, I just feel like, or, you know, even talk about Roberto Bolaño, like the stakes for the Latin American poets of that generation were, were very different because they were seeing the underside of the imperial project, you know, us in the, you know, on the, on the flip side of that, which isn't a word I ever use, but I've used it twice in this interview, <laughs> yeah. uh, 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 you know, we see the, the, the front end, if you like, of, uh, of the cultural project, you know, we see it's, you know, uh, and we learn to be critical and suspicious of that, but we're very rarely on the, the receiving end of its weaponry, right? Um, of its weaponry, which is real. And I just wanted to like somehow bring those things into communication with each other in a way that felt believable to me. So you have figures like the, um, 
there's a there's a man who uh, one of the characters meets in a pub who is clearly a, a war survivor of some sort, um, and he's he's like this very indirect link to a real a real sort of theater of combat. But those those things, I just wanted to have some sense of how those how do those things actually connect up between the creative industries, if you like, and the actual like. Um, yeah, the actual realities that are um, that part, in a in a way those industries are predicated on, right? Not in any direct way, not in a in a way that you can say it's A to B, but nonetheless there are relationships there, and I think it was, a, yeah, a, partly a way of trying to think around and through those connections. It was in you know I was thinking about what you said about the the lefties and and saying you know people died over whatever the aesthetic was or whatever you were talking about. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, for me, you know, that stuff drives me insane because <laughs> we can talk about things. We can make art out of things that were tragic and rough, you know, in the past. Yeah. And um, that's the freedom of being an artist. And now I feel like a lot of artists, you know, poets, and, and they're being confined because you don't want to break these current, like, the current taboos that we're not supposed to talk about anything regarding you know, left-wing policies or indigenous people mm -hmm. or people that are different than you. And, uh, a kind of groupthink. Yeah, it's like a groupthink. And it, it used to be the right, and now it's the left, mm -hmm. you know. And I'm like, I, I'm, not, I'm not a right-wing person, but it's like, to me, art needs to be wide open, you yeah. know. Yeah, and I'm not talking about hate speech or, or you know. No, you no. Know, you know, I think it's a complicated situation. It's very complicated. And this is, this is the point I wanted to bring up and I wanted to ask you. Your book... Is complicated, and there's a lot of nuance, and there's all these things going. And I believe the guy that was the the vet was Scabhead, right? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And, and um, you know, I think this gets lost with young people, like this young reviewer we've brought up a few times. I'm gonna tell you, I know you didn't care, but that interview or that review on NPR infuriated Same. me because I was just, I was Mike and I were going back and forth. I'm like, you did not get this at all, you know, like. But at any rate, and I think it is a lot to do with youth. However, there's a lot going on here. And it's so easy just to say it's like, oh, it's making fun of what I believe in. It's not. I mean, you're a poet. This it's is not what just you youth do. who are doing it. it yeah. It, and it, it, and it's, it's grownups in, in yeah, and it's the like liberal nobody can elite take, that are doing Nobody it. can have a nuanced discussion about things anymore. It's just like it's either this or this. Well, I, the other thing I think Sam brings up, and uh, Sam, I'd be interested to hear your take on it, is there's also been a corporatization of kind of group think. There's an acceptable pattern of things to say, and we're yeah. seeing companies such as a Nike or Bank of America like or, you know, Sky or somebody... You know, when political statements start to be made by corporations, I immediately distrust them because corp <laughs> corp corporations, you know, uh, have not yeah. typically put the best interests of citizens yeah. forward. So, of and all I, places. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that you know, there are, and again, I'm, I'm also not a, a raving right wing loony that wishes Trump was back in the White House in August. I mean, let's just get that clear. But I think one of the things you are mentioning and, and trying to gently get at in your book. Um, right really through the end where the book I think really kind of picks up speed and what I described really is a, a kind of sustained work of rage at the beginning of this very show. I, I think what you're trying to point out is that some of the ways that we talk about actions, objects, and speech in the modern publishing world, the modern art world, um, are deeply problematic and we don't actually address why that is. 
Yes, yes. You know, we don't look at, yeah, just, you know, I was going to use the example of we don't actually ask ourselves if we're criticizing social media, if we're criticizing someone's tweet, or if we're criticizing the state of Belarus putting a political prisoner on YouTube and YouTube making money off that. You know what I mean? There's different shifting things here, and I think that that is something that is really at the core of your book. Yeah, uh, completely, and yeah, thank you for bringing this up. I think it's... um, it's it's complex and it's hard to talk about, which is part of some of the evasions in the book are, are ways of trying not to caricature certain dynamics, like between the left and the right, for example, or to over caricature them. So there's a bit where it talks about like red team and white uh, blue team, which is like um, you know Republican Democrat, but it's flipped here. You know, red team is left wing uh, in uh, <laughs> right. in the UK. Labor Labor's um, red, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, <laughs> I said I completely agree and this is something I was thinking about quite a lot that there can there is uh, a, a point a, a point which is hard to pinpoint uh, but it happens very seamlessly where something that seems like a legitimate and necessary political statement or um, even just a sort of uh, intervention on the level of speech in public speech happens. And it and and that statement being um, very rapidly taken up and co-opted and uh, and turned into something that is uh, essentially a, a mode of commodification for something, yeah. right? So it's like you know, pride is Pride Month, right? So that would be a good example. Yeah. Something that like something that started off as a completely necessary and like radical, dangerous thing. And, and something that was very important to becoming like something that Pret has a, you know, I don't know if you have Pret. Right, well, yeah, Pret a manger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're actually right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was like a Pret, there's like a pride sandwich or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I mean, this is a fairly glib example, but like, yeah. I think that I, I'm very, I'm quite interested in where is this point where something that has political valency and reality becomes an empty aesthetic gesture? It's a and that, does, does that happen instantaneously? And is there any way of like safeguarding the political, the like the actual political engagement or political statement against that, or is it completely futile? Or is it is it the case that the the sort of um, the politically engaged, uh, aesthetically aware person is just simply continually extricating themselves from their allegiances that they have previously made, right? In which case we end up in this strange like cultural situation where everyone is is sort of performatively aligning or unaligning themselves with different torrents or streams of approval or disapproval, right? And this becomes just a game of aesthetics. It's yet that still might have some real political currency in some circumstances. So I think it's very complicated. And it's more that I don't necessarily have an exact position on this other than sharing your suspicion and um, uh, at times uh, incredulity at how this quickly this happens. Um, It also might mean, though, that people don't actually have any real beliefs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like that. I mean, in some ways, it's mirroring the, the political machination on the side of power, which has ceased to be ideologue saying this is what we believe get behind us if this is what you believe and started to be more what do you guys think and we're just going to reflect back what we think you want to hear yeah and that's become the mode of power right and i think again there it becomes much more difficult to pinpoint 
where the actual uh, home of power is, if it's simply supposedly reflecting yeah. back yeah. what you want to hear. And we're in a very strange, complicated, like multi-mirror situation here that I think is really hard to think through with any clarity. So yeah, with the book, I wanted to sort of register those things in a way that hopefully feels familiar and estranged. So it can be a little removed. So you'll be like, actually, that is really weird, but I still can recognize it as in some way resembling the reality I live in. Yeah. We've been speaking with Sam Riviere. He's got a new book out called Dead Souls. It's out from Catapult. Sam, I think we could probably talk to you for another two hours, yeah, but okay. they don't give us that much time on this radio station, which is a shame. They should give us more time. Why, do, nice why don't we have more time to talk about I'll literature? I'll tell you, those two-hour podcasts, so they're too long. Yeah, they're too long. They're too long. <laughs> two hours on poetry? Who would do that? Uh, Sam, real quick, we're going to leave, uh, of course, with, as we always do on this show, you're going to get the last word. We're going to hear a final reading from your book. But Sam, what do you have coming up next after this book, which, of course, has just come out and maybe an unfair question but if you have anything to leave our listeners with we'd love to know about it um uh just check out my small press that's the main if you're interested in poetry um uh, uh that's something you might find interesting that's my main focus right now okay. apart from just uh you know trundling along in whatever strange time this is what's the website uh, of that please uh so it's on my website it's called if a leaf falls press and that's a subsection of my it's all very um, unprofessional. Okay. <laughs> Sam, do you I have that? Uh, is the Kim Kardashian's marriage book on that site? Because I want to check. Yeah, that you out. can. Uh, uh, that's not on my own press, but that's uh, uh, there's a page on that on my website as well, so you can find out about that if you're interested. Right. I'm interested. I think in it's that. just samsname.com. Samsname.com. Yeah, it is samrevier.com. Yeah. Sam exactly. And of course, that name will be properly spelled on uh, the podcast and on lumpenradio.com. So you can just go there and check out all things Sam. Sam, thank you so much Thanks, for spending time out, especially when, you know, obviously we're all on pins and needles about England, Scotland. I really do appreciate you taking time yeah, out. Thank you so sleep. much. Thanks for the considered reading of the book and your, your amazing oh, questions. Our pleasure. I really appreciate it. Our thank pleasure, you. Sam. Our pleasure. Guys, thank we'll you. be back next week. Julie DeCarroll's in the show. Thank you so much for paying attention to I-94. As they began to gather at the windows one by one, I reflected that I only had feelings or thoughts about these people, these poets, to the extent that I could see them or that I held them in my mind. And yet I seemed to have feelings and thoughts about them constantly. I was like a house for feelings and thoughts about these 40 or 50 people who I could see gathering in the windows of the Travel Lodge bar, and that I was constantly occupied by feelings and thoughts about their lives and their activities, and I understood as I watched them that they were not dependent on me, these 40 or 50 people, but that I was dependent on them. I was nothing but a house for thoughts and feelings about them, and that they had allowed me to express my thoughts and feelings about them. They had even welcomed and encouraged my feelings and thoughts about them, until the house of thoughts and feelings had emptied, and all of my problems and difficulties with these 40 or 50 people seemed to disappear. Now that I was confronted by them in person like this, massed together in the Travel Lodge bar, their outlines assembling in the windows like the expression of a single intelligence, as if they were only outward expressions of my thoughts, but they were also where the thoughts found form, and that without them there would be no thoughts. So really my dependence on them was total, I realized, and I knew that the 40 or 50 people in the window were to turn away from me entirely. It would cause me to descend immediately into despair, to withdraw into my own endless complexes, justifying my removal from the group of 40 or 50 people, but equally, that if they had welcomed me into their ranks, and their ranks had closed around me, I would soon start to resent their proximity and their demands on my energy, and I would also in that case withdraw into my own complexes justifying my removal from the group of 40 or 50 poets. In other words, the outcome would be the same, and it was clear to me then, I thought, 
that the only place for me was here, where I was standing, in front of a large sheet of glass that separated me from the poetry community, these 40 or 50 otherwise quite unremarkable people. And at this safe distance, shielded by a layer of glass, I was able to praise and insult the group of 40 or 50 poets who were gathered in the floor-to-ceiling windows of the Travel Lodge bar, their gazes beginning to click towards me as I gestured towards them with friendly gestures and insulting gestures alternatingly. I knew that from this safe distance, while being able to observe the poets at full length, while feasting my eyes on this gathering of poets, nothing short of all the poets in the window collapsing to the floor would be enough for me, but this state of nothing being enough was precisely what suited me. I thought as I continued to pace to make gestures on the pavement outside the travel lodge bar, because I could feel the judgment that was coming towards us as if from overhead. It was falling towards us like a dark shape from the sun, and only if I could keep the poets in sight, in clear view at all times, as all of their eyes were connected to mine or focused on an area around my neck, as I continued to gesture and pace on the other side of the glass, only then could I prevent myself from entering a state of absolute panic. Lumpen Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Sam Riviere, author of Dead Souls, Out Now from Catapult. This episode originally aired on June 17, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>